Okay, we are in the question and answer phase of the conference, which we will try to be done with at 2 o'clock. That is 52 minutes from now, or one Alan Nelson sermon. That's a devotion. It was a good 52 minutes. For the whole panel, please discuss the means of grace. How do we focus on the gospel without neglecting any biblical instructions, i.e. preaching and teaching, ordinances, fellowship, prayer, etc.? These, <clears throat> these are means of grace. That literally, I, could, I, I would just I would put the gospel in the word for grace. Means of the gospel. They're means of communicating the gospel. Uh, we're Baptists, so we believe that when we take the Lord's Supper, that that's not that's not a salvific thing, but it's demonstrating, communicating the gospel. In fact, that's I, I would just say like if you're if you're not doing those things, then you're not focusing on the gospel. You know, if you're not doing the Lord's Supper regularly, if you're not baptizing, if you're not preaching the word, if you're not praying, all these means of grace, like, these are ways that we communicate, and God's given us, you know, all these people like to do dramas and show stuff on the, you know, screen and all that, it's like, God's given us a drama in the two ordinances, God's given us, you want to see something tangible that you can see, that's baptism, that you can see and taste, that's the Lord's Supper. Right. Good answer. Anybody else? Alan hit the saw. Please, please share about leading your churches to greater work and labor in corporate prayer. In corporate prayer. I'm anti-corporate. I don't know what that makes me politically. I think corporations are bad. I'm stalling for time. You guys come up with an answer. Okay. Please share about leading your churches to greater work and labor in corporate prayer. I'll recognize that handwriting. That, that's actually uh, hard to do. I mean, typical Baptist church Wednesday night prayer meeting is more or less taking prayer requests and, you know, praying for Aunt Susie's, uh, you know, ingrown toenail type stuff. And it's very difficult to incorporate uh, church members even even men in the church, deacons, to, to pray. You want that. Um, and it's very frustrating for a, uh, a pastor. What has helped me is a book that uh, Dennis Gunderson wrote. Um, it has helped uh, to really formulate the prayer meeting to a more corporate, uh, uh, I, I guess, making it more spiritual than physical type stuff, okay? Um, the physical needs are important, but the more spiritual things are much more important, and that's what we need to be focusing on. And, uh, 
you know, once your church grabs a hold of that, it, it, it does make the corporate prayer time much more beneficial. I've prayed for that cat. What am I doing? Oh, you 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 me tell. Usually, usually I don't even need a microphone. Yeah, I can hear. That's a lot louder. <laughs> do I got to do this whole thing again? No, we heard it. All right, got you. But uh, loud and clear, we got you. You gonna say something, Brandon? Yeah, just one thing, and I uh, I agree with everything these two men just said. Uh, what one way we incorporate that? I think that was maybe part of the question. For instance, at our church on Sunday mornings, before we dismiss the Sunday school, we'll read every Sunday morning a missionary letter. And so we've got multiple missionaries we support monthly. And so we'll read that letter. And uh, a part of our prayer service to dismiss the Sunday school is we pray specifically for that missionary and any needs that they might have in their newsletter that they brought up. And so I think that's maybe one example of how you can incorporate 
you know, there you're praying specifically for that missionary, for their needs, for the souls that they're laboring to share the gospel with. And so you're laboring more again for the furtherance of the gospel through the ministry of corporate prayer. Just an example of how it was. Yeah, you're on the panel, man. No. Oh, no. You're second hillbilly to me. I'll challenge that ground. <laughs> Anyways, now I've got a preference for what I'm fixing to tell you with telling you a little bit about the church. We, Bloomer, we are tiny, all right? So, I mean, you're looking at 25 folks there on a Sunday morning. And on Wednesday nights, we have an inductive Bible study. And all, all I'm doing is uh, there are some, some scriptural journals that you can order from 316. I ordered those, and, and we love it. We are certainly going through different books. But I became burdened. Whoever asked the question, if you're a pastor, I shared your burden at Bloomer. Is, is It seemed like something was missing. I was doing the best of my God-given ability to preach scripture as laid out to the best of my understanding. But I felt like we were missing in prayer. So what I did was I started studying on old prayer meetings. And I found out that they were a lot different than what I grew up seeing in the Southern Baptist churches that I, I, I grew up in, you know, on Wednesday nights we would show up, everybody from the cat puking up to grandpa's cancer to a death in the family, those were the prayer requests being made, and then after they were made, the pastor would pray for them, but what I found out in these old prayer meetings, it was, there was a person leading, but the saints were praying for the saints, so on Wednesday night, as, as I thought about it, kicked it around, and thought, well, you know, I'm going to go for this, and I'll set aside 45 minutes for inductive study, and I started setting aside 15 minutes. I mean, I didn't care what time it was or, or where we were at in our text. Is I shut it off, and I, we still do this. And uh, I'm not like Ronnie. I can't tell you people started coming to that. But what we do is as we enter into that is I'll pray, and then a prayer request is mentioned. A prayer request is mentioned. When that prayer request is finished mentioning is I used to go, all right, who will pray for this? And somebody in the crowd or that was there on Wednesday night out of the 12 to 15, they would pray for it. Now, it was really odd when it began, all right, like because uh, I had a church member who came and he knew what was going on. He said, that's weird. And I said, well, study the history. You know, this it, it isn't a, something new. But what's cool about it, instead of hearing uh, the gossip sessions that happened during prayer request time, is the, the prayer requests that were made are so much more sincere. I've heard prayer requests, of course, for the sick, for those who have cancer, but I've also heard saints visibly, audibly make prayer requests to the other saints at Bloomer for the salvation of my husband, the salvation of my son, um, you know, my grandchildren. These, I mean, they're more intimate prayer requests, and then that person or that, that member who made the prayer request is they get to hear another saint pray for them. It's not just me like I'm a pope praying for them, you know, is they, they are involved by the same Holy Spirit. They have access to the throne just like I do, but they hear another saint pray for them. And to be honest with you, what I've seen, we don't have strangers come in and take a part of this, but I've seen the fellowship of the saints begin to grow and strengthen through that. Um, sometimes, you know, there'll be a prayer request mentioned, and, and they'll still have a tendency to want to gossip a little bit, but the other saints that are there now will shut it down. All right, if they see that begin one, they're going, I'll pray for this, because they're beginning to realize that we're there to lift each other's needs up in prayer. Uh, and so that that's what we're doing at Bloomer, and I'm not saying that's the do-all, end-all, but that's what seems to be going on so for us. Good. Those are good testimonies. Let's look at the next one. 
Question for the panel, should there be a plurality of elders? No. Could there be? Yes. Yeah. If there are men in your church who are qualified, um, yes, I believe so. I don't believe it has to be. Maybe if you're in a small church and do not have qualified men, but if you do, I believe that the biblical uh, basis is, yes, plurality. Having more shepherds versus one is better than one. Yeah. My opinion of scripture, and I'm right. I think that, uh, oh, that's loud. I think that, um, I think there's a biblical pattern for plurality of elders. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessary for a church to be um, biblical, but I would say that as a general rule, it's not just the SBC that under, doesn't understand what a pastor is. As a general rule, we really don't understand what a pastor is. Some of us are wanting more people, and you don't realize we're going to stand accountable for the people we have. And we're the shepherd. We're actually the shepherd them. Not just stand up to preach to them, but to shepherd them. And so, for that reason, I would say that there's a very practical and biblical reason to have plurality of elders. Now, I pastor a church, so I'm the only pastor. But I'm saying it because of, of practical reasons that are own. Now, we're a small church. But you think one man can shepherd 50 people. Well, maybe if you don't have a wife and kids, you know. Uh, and so I just think that there's a biblical and practical reason why there's plurality of elders more than just saying, oh, we got a plurality of elders. I'm just, I just wanted to in, interject the, uh, the shepherding aspect. I think <clears throat> I'll qualify my answer. I gave it real short. The answer was no, there's no clear biblical command you must have a plurality of elders. Is there a pattern for that? Yes. Is there also a pattern for single eldership? Yes. Jesus writes a letter to seven churches, and he doesn't say to the elder board. He says to the messenger. It's singular. Somebody's the pastor. Now look, as your congregation grows, and it may not have to be big, each congregation is different. What, what needs to be considered is the location of these early churches. Ronnie was talking about house churches and how crowded it gets. If you're, if you're meeting in homes and there's 100 people in your church, you probably need six elders because you're not all meeting in one home, one first century home. So you have to take in the whole set of things. Here's the problem you're going to run into. If you mandate every church have a plurality of elders, I preach in churches where there's 10 people. Should three of them people be the elder? I mean, it, a lot of this logic is coming from our Presbyterian brothers. And because Baptists were not writers, we're preachers, we tend to read Presbyterian works. And here's what Presbyterians say. You need a plurality of elders. But here's what Presbyterians do. They baptize all their children. If you've got a church full of unregenerate people, you need a bunch of regenerate people leading this thing. If you're a Baptist, you should have a body of believers who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, have the mind of Christ, are united together in love, under sound doctrinal preaching. Ten people can get together in a room and vote on the color of carpet and not split. As that church gets bigger, like George Mace, they have a plurality of elders. As it gets bigger, yes, you need to take over this side. I need to take over this. You need to work in this area. That all becomes necessary. Mandate it? No. Recommend it? 
Yes. That's my take. And the rest of you can be wrong, including Wade. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not against it. I just, I think if you start mandating it, you end up with unbiblical elders because you're trying to hit a criteria or a quota. Is it off again? Okay, here we go. Um, okay, I, I am, I'm definitely of the mind of a plurality of elders, and yet I'm sitting in a church and I am the only pastor. Repent. Yeah. And, uh, but, but the thing is, we, we are moving that direction. But I, but I am going to say this. Whether it comes to ordaining deacons or, or a plurality of elders, you don't do it just because it ne- you, you think it needs to be done. They need to qualify. It's easy to ordain people. When you made a mistake, it's not so easy to undo that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be, and, and, and the thing of it is, um, coming from Sovereign Grace, where we did have a plurality of elders, one of the things about it uh, was this. Not only was I one of the elders or pastors, I, I think that's interchangeable, um, but I was also submitted to three other men, and, and, and they held me accountable. So, you know, there, there's a lot of aspects on this. I, I, you know, there, there, there obviously could be a lot of, you know, discussion, and we could, you know, vigorously duke it out and all that, those things. But, but I, I do believe that the Scripture... You know, when we, when we read these things, it talks about a plurality. Now, the way those things are set up, sometimes you have a place where there's like a, somebody does most of the preaching, um, like a primary preaching, and, and they're kind of put in places where they're more, more gifted. At Sovereign Grace, we didn't know how to do it. We just said, well, you know what, let's just rotate the pulpit. It was a little weird to get used to, but after a while, it worked out really well. I'm not saying that's even the best model there right now. But there's a lot of discussion could be made. So, but I will. But the one thing I do want to advocate is this: don't don't ordain people just because you want them to be really qualified to fill that position. Good discussion. Some of you are partially wrong. Good discussion. What is? And I, <laughs> these guys are my friends. You know, that's the only people that preach here. I can talk to them like that. What is the Aquinas issue mentioned in Harold Smith's sermon? You two seminary guys might want to jump on that. You're the one that you're the one that mentioned it in your sermon, so I think you. Alan mentioned it first. Oh, okay. So that's why I handed that. I, I will tell you in layman's terms. Thomas Aquinas had a view of scripture interpretation that was a little faulty in some of his logic and reformers were always divided on whether you should do this or shouldn't do this today people would disagree I've had people tell me you interpret scripture like Thomas Aquinas and I've had people tell me you don't interpret scripture like Thomas Aquinas you do it the right way so here's what I've concluded if you have to educate me on what I need to be mad about I don't need to be mad about it okay and so what has happened and, and I, I called guys smarter than me, and I said, help me out here. And I, I talked to two guys on t- either side of the coin. I won't mention their names. They're both good friends of mine. 
I said, what's going on here? And they, these guys are doing this and this and this, and, the, and they're all wrong. What's going on here? These guys are doing this, this, and this, and they're all wrong. I said, okay. I looked at both groups. They had the same standard of fellowship, 1689 Confession of Faith. I thought, okay. So basically, the way Thomas Aquinas interpreted Scripture, some people say it's right, some people say it's wrong. There's good brothers on each side, all right? I'm not going to wait off in that argument. It's stupid. I just use it as an example of this is stupid stuff people argue about, okay? Alan, am I wrong? Check me on that. I'll yield to you and your, <laughs> no, your wisdom. I, I like what you're saying, and I would, I would say this. When it comes to the Trinity, and, and Aquinas uh, talks about the, the relations, this is all about the relation of the 20, uh, in the Trinity, and it's about the character and, and nature of God, so it's very, very important. Obviously, we want to get this right. But when we talk about the Trinity... There are things that we have to say, and I, I, we don't, I'm not saying punt on this, but the things we have to say is like, there, there's, there is mystery here. There's yeah. mystery within the relations of the Trinity. And I cannot be in favor of people being dogmatic on one side or the other on these issues, uh, anathematizing brothers on the other side. I'm not a Thomas, and uh, I will Define not. Define Thomas. A, Tom, a Thomist is similar to maybe how you, well, no, I don't think it's similar how you'd use Calvinists because most people use Calvinists and they don't even know who John Calvin is. But Thomas is someone who follows uh, Aquinas' metaphysical understanding of the relations. Inner. Define metaphysical. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's immaterial. Uh, you know, it's not just, uh, it's outside, it's outside the material relations. You know, so Aquinas used Aristotle he baptized Aristotle basically I'm not saying literally I'm saying he used Aristotle's reasoning to get to God um, you know Aristotle's reasoning is everything has a movement everything is in motion everything's in motion in the universe and so Aristotle argued for God by saying that there has to be an unmoved mover you, if something's in motion it's it's been pushed into motion all the way back to where you get an unmoved mover. So that's that's Aristotle talking about how you prove God. So Aquinas says... I thought that was Isaac Newton. No. First law of physics. <laughs> no. So uh, it wasn't. Okay. So Aquinas says that we can... Uh, that that's the way that we can come to know God. The problem is, in my opinion, it proves the wrong God. And so Aquinas wants to talk about immobility within God and all that. The, the point is, there's mystery here. Okay, I'm not trying to just bore us, but I'm just saying there is mystery, okay? And I think that it's unfair for the Thomist to label the non-Thomist as outside the confession and they're not really believers. Oh, and, and really, really what they want to accuse them is these are good brothers, boy, but a few years down the road, man, their disciples are going to be just crazy liberals or whatever. And I also would say it's, I don't, if you're going to be a Thomas, I don't care. I can be friends with you. Just don't don't be the type of Thomas that anathematizes me, because then it'd be hard for me to be a friend to you if yeah. you anathematize me. You know, um, so I think that these. So each church needs to decide whether it's a Thomas or not, and then it needs to have the gospel as its standard of fellowship with non-Thomas churches, right? Yes. Sure. I, my people, I'm just going to. I'll put my. Card I mean, I feel like I have to take a semester of Greek philosophy yeah. to know what we're talking my about. My people are not going to. My people are never going to hear about Thomas Aquinas, nor am I going to say read Thomas Aquinas. In fact, I don't think, now I take a position, it's hard 
stands. I don't think we're going to see Thomas Aquinas in heaven. Now, you can push back on that. That's fine. I think that he held to a false gospel of justification by works. But, uh, you ready? yeah, go ahead, Wade. I, I just don't, I, I think it's not fair to be, I think it's just not fair to be dividing over this issue. Y'all clear on this now? Here's Wade. Yeah, just, just real quick. The reason why it became such a controversy is because Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, uh, who wrote a book um, that really, uh, how would you say it would be? Two seminarians. Two seminarians. And, and I read the book. I gave it a book. Or, I, gave I know. I remember you complaining about it. But anyway. Having to read um, it. There, there were seminaries, Southern Baptist seminaries, teaching uh, Thomas Aquinas' works. And uh, he pushed back against that and, and wrote a, uh, a book uh, saying that his natural theology that Aquinas uh, taught and believed is is not biblical, and if if you continue to go down this road, it's going to lead to more liberalism and so forth. So that's where the controversy stirred, and uh, the seminary that I attend, the president of it, wrote the book, and I think it's really one that stirred the controversy. Yeah, I don't want to oversimplify because I can make everybody agree with me, but I'm not trying to oversimplify. But basically, Jeff says you can't start with philosophy to get to God. You need to start with natural revelation to get to God. You can't start with natural theology, which he defines a philosophy, yeah. to get to God. That's the point. Now, I know I could make everybody agree with that. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's where I stand. And I, I want to push, uh, not push back, I want to commend your message um, because I think that I wish some more brothers on both sides would hear that message and be like, you know what, we really are, we really are close. You know, you got, you got people, you got like James White, and then, like Richard Belisarius, yeah, Richard Barcelos, like on opposite sides of this, yeah. And I'm like, man, I love both these guys, and I yeah. want to listen to both these guys, and yeah. you know, yeah, I love Jeff Johnson, I love the guys at at IRBS in, in Mansfield, Texas, and I'm like, this is stupid, you know, and and both of them are going, the standard is the 1689. I'm like, you're both on it, but you're disagreeing over these little subtle differences that you've, I mean. The standard's not that. It's the gospel. The label that people's thrown at the non-Thomas side is biblicist. It's like, well, you're just a biblicist. You don't care about creeds and confessions. No. All you just care is about the Bible. But we do care about that. You said it today. Yeah. You said it today in your message about creeds and confessions and the reason we need them. Sure. But our standard. Our, but our, that's for local church-based. Yeah. The church ought to have a centralized doctrine that it adheres to that they can expect from the pulpit to the pew. But outside of the church, you're going to have other churches that are gospel-preaching churches that are Corinth and Galatia and, you know, Laodicea. Uh, these are churches we read in Scripture, and we're like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't attend there. Can I share one last quote? You can do anything you want. You're yeah, Alan Nelson. This is, from, this is from my five-year-old son. No one cares. Speaking of the Bible, here's the next uh, question. Thoughts on the received text? I like it. That's Josh Bullock question. Josh needs to be answering that one. I like it. Go ahead, Wade. Uh, this would be a King James only. No, received text only. Received text only. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, well, the, yeah, I must well, say, no, it's, yeah, it's not. To me, that's uh, where I've always thought. They walk hand in hand. Um, what, what do you think? <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know you got it. So, I mean, here's the thing. A lot of guys want to label TR guys as King James only. King James only is not TR only. King James only are Ruckmanites. They're double inspiration. They believe that when the 1611 was translated that God re-inspired his word. And so because it's been purified and they take Psalms out of context to try to prove that, that now you can never have another English translation of the Bible because it was re-inspired. It doesn't need to ever be translated again. TR guys say, we're not opposed to a new translation. We're just saying go back to what we would say is the most reliable text. Just because something's older doesn't mean it's most reliable, which is where your critical text guys are going to differ from the TR guys. They right. say, well, this is older. You know, it was found wherever, Dead Sea Scrolls, so forth. And because it's older, it's more reliable. And so you'll have footnotes in the other translations that say this is found in an older, most reliable text. TR guys would just contest that just because it's older doesn't mean it's more reliable. You know, and I had a guy use an illustration. It's an illustration. All illustrations break down. But he said if you're reading a book on your bookshelf and you read it once a year, every year for 40 years, at the end of 40 years, you're going to have to buy a new book because it's wore out. If you've got another book sitting on your shelf that you never read, 40 years later, it's going to look like it's brand new. It's not going to be worn out. And so he used that to just try to, and again, it's illustration. I know it breaks down. This isn't solid uh, as far as the TR argument goes. But he just said some of these older manuscripts, they weren't ever used. That's why they lasted. That's why they didn't get discarded and scribes didn't rewrite them. And the reason a lot of the majority text is newer is because they were reading it, they were using it, and when they used it to the point it couldn't be used anymore, they had to rewrite it and throw away the old copies. Yeah. And so that's the t basically the TR position is we're not opposed to a new translation. Let's just use the TR. And, and the main reason for that is we believe, and both sides do, both sides believe in preservation. We believe that God preserved his scripture from the time it was given, and the church has always had the word of God. If the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, then we've always had the truth. And so if we're saying, like I know some guys do, well, we could find manuscripts tomorrow that might shed more light on the scriptures, and we could say, okay, well, we found more of God's word. Well, if that's the case, then the church for 2,000 years has been partially without the word of God. Right. And I just don't believe that that's, I believe, preservation from the moment it was given, that we've always had it. Yeah. And so uh, that, in a nutshell, is where the TR guys are. And so... You know, with that, I know a lot of guys that are strong TR that, I mean, here, I, I'm a TR only guy, but I'm in this conference, yeah. and I enjoy hearing every one of these guys preach, yeah. whether they're using the King James Version or another version. Yeah. And uh, I don't make that the point of fellowship. No. I make the gospel the point of fellowship. I know so. a guy preached on that one time. I just want to say real quick, too, is not, not like it's not important. This is important, okay? I'm not a TR guy. I, so I do think all this is very, very important, just like I think the Aquinas stuff, sure, it's all important. But here's the thing. We can trust most of our English tra translations. I'm talking about the ESV, NASB, King James, New King James, 
this, the LSB, these kind of things. We can trust these. We can trust these English translations. And our people need to be reading them and studying them. And we cannot let these debates take away from that we have reliable copies of the Word of God, the, the infallible and errant Word of God. And so um, I just want to be careful not to let these debates obscure, you know, that reality. And I'm, 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 I'm like, Brandon, it's not a test of fellowship. I think we have arguments on both sides, but sure. we, have the, we have God's Word in English. Praise God that we have God. Yeah. And our, our Kansans can read the Word of God. Uh, I, and one I, more thing, just to separate the King James onlyist from the TR, because I think it's important to separate the two. Yeah, it is. The King James onlyist, they're the kind of guys that are saying, you know, the people that translate the ESV, they hate God, and they're trying to take the blood out of the Bible. And they're trying yeah. to take, you know, key doctrines out of the Scriptures. And I don't think that's the truth. But that's how they present it. They, they have a straw man argument, and then they put it out there, and they got a lot of people that just follow that hook, line, and sinker. Instead of going to the textual issue, if you're going to look at it as an issue, go to the textual issue, not a translation right. issue. And I th- I'll say something before Ronnie says something. <clears throat> you're finding a lot more Reformed Baptist guys going back to the TR for reasons that Brandon just said. I'm encountering a lot of Reformed guys that are like, you know, I, I left my King James Bible and I went to the ESV. Then I started studying some differences and, and now I'm reading the New King James, you know. And, and I'm like, well, why'd you do that? And they're like, well, I believe we've always had the Bible. I don't believe that we didn't have it for this gap. And uh, so for me, it's not a point of, of fellowship. I'm not going to say, I don't, I don't tell you guys what version to preach out of when you come here. But I don't cast any light on those of you that don't use the TR version or those that do I, I use the King James because that's what I'm comfortable with that's what I've primarily used most of my life and I think those verses that the other versions don't have should be there So, but hey look I barely graduated Greenwood High School so don't take my word for it Ronnie was you going to say something I was just going to say that uh, if you're not reading the Geneva Bible <laughs> you're not reading the Bible yeah. it's Geneva only <laughs> no, I'm, I, I want to say this. Um, think about think about the preaching that just took place. Um, I'm pretty sure Josh, that's an ESV there, right? Was you an ESV? I mean, Joseph. Yeah, sorry, sorry. You'll, all right, well, that works. What do you have, ESV? I mean, we heard two gospel messages that were just. I mean, they were incredible. They were biblically rich. So. Um, I just want to encourage you to get the Bible and read it, though. I mean, that's that's the main thing. So, But, like I said, Geneva only, brothers. All right. That's what the pilgrims had. Yeah. For Joseph and Harold, please talk about the pastoral transition at Lee Creek Baptist Church and how you brothers are able to work together at Lee Creek and Harold's, with, and Harold's ministry. Joseph, you haven't said anything, so take off. <laughs> uh, as far as the transition, I mean, I'm kind of shocked at how uh, it all just came together. Um, I can see God's providence and sovereignty in orchestrating that. I came from more of an IFB type background, and um, in my tenure of pastoring that church, came to the doctrines of grace, went through a major theological shift, and so I, I knew that I couldn't be in that that vicinity for a, a long term um, position. 
uh, the church was pretty ingrained on the opposite side of those doctrines. And uh, so I began to pray about um, a place God would open up that we would fit, and uh, doctrinally and practically. And um, at the same time, uh, Harold had been uh, exiting his pastorate ministry here at Lee Creek. And so I didn't know Harold till what, October, November last year? Yeah, and, I was preaching um, in Kentucky in October. We had a mutual friend, Troy McGahan, and uh, Troy knew my situation and uh, that I was looking, and uh, he knew Harold. Uh, he brought Harold all the way up there to meet a guy that uh, he thought would be a good fit for Lee Creek, and the, you went up there, and the guy wasn't interested. <laughs> so I told him to stay where trip. he was at. He, I said, you're not ready to leave. Right. You need to stay where you're at. And uh, on that same trip, we ended up meeting, and it's just one of those things that God just worked worked out and went from there. And uh, the transition here has been so smooth, and the church has been so helpful. Um, I could not have asked for a better transition. And uh, working with Brother Harold, he's been such a huge help to us. And... Um, we, we, we love his ministry, love him and what he's doing. So I don't know if you want to comment more on that. Yeah. Uh, it, it really, for me, it goes back to a high view of the authority of the pastor. I preached that. I taught that. I tried to model that, not as a dictator, but as a loving shepherd who has oversight of his congregation to feed them and protect them. It's a twofold ministry. And so I taught that. I taught that. I taught that. We held a conference just for preachers, the church has a high view of preachers, so now that I'm no longer the pastor, I have to have a high view for Joseph Allen, my pastor, so when I left here, I said, there'll be no more preachers at Grace Conference, and everybody's like, we'll have it whether you like it or not, I'm like, no, you will not, you will not tell your pastor who's going to preach in his church, and when they're going to preach in his church, that's his call, and so when he came here, I humbly and politely asked him, how would you feel about this? But you all as a church had been asking him. Preachers that he would meet in our meetings were, are y'all going to keep that conference going? Did I ever pressure you to do this? Did I ever, no. you know, quiz you on this before you were pastor? No. That's because it's his, it's his church, it's his call. And so I, I take this so serious that the church that I'm serving now as interim pastor for years, they've had this, for the last five years, they've had this gospel singing group comes in and they sing and preach. And the, the gospel presentation is pretty, pretty gospel singing type gospel presentation. And I said, look guys, this is not what we're going to do. So I taught them that the pastor's responsibility is over what's preached, the pulpit. And so I thought this had all been canceled. Well, a couple of the men in the church tried to go ahead and schedule this group to come in and do a revival while I'm still the interim pastor. And uh, I thought, this is a mountain I'll die on. You know, they'll either follow my leadership as the, the, the interim pastor controlling over the ministry and the, and the preaching of the church, or I'll leave. And uh, so I called the men in that scheduled this. We sat down, we talked. They quickly saw that this was, they were out of line. They repented. Everything was put away. Some people in the church were mad at me. Who do you think you are? I think I'm the pastor. At West Park. I think Joseph Allen is the pastor at Lee Creek. And I think the only way I can stay a member at Lee Creek is to continually recognize he's the pastor of Lee Creek. I'm a member serving under his authority. And so as long as you maintain that, I think a pastor can have a ministry and be a member of his church. But the day people start coming to me, Brother Harold, I want to ask you a question. No, you've got to go ask your pastor. It's his decision. And as long as I maintain that relationship, I think Joseph continue continue to respect me and the, the
the work that I'm doing and not see me as a threat to, to your ministry. And that's what I'm striving to do, Joseph. And that's one thing that stuck out to me, too, with, with Harold's response is that he has truly honored that position. And, I, I mean, I, I don't demand that, uh, but it's something that's recognizable. I've heard horror stories of former pastors being in churches and still trying to run things and control everything. And um, I admire Harold for his, for his response and um, his respect towards us and helping us in the transition. And, um, of course, I want to do the conference. I just told him I had to preach in it if he's going to do it. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I told him he did not have to have me preach, um, but he did anyway, and I appreciate yeah. that. But, uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's been great to meet everybody here. I mean, I, I, being where I was, it was, I felt like I was somewhat on an island by myself. And uh, to meet more like-minded men in the ministry is uh, very, very refreshing and encouraging. So I appreciate all of you. Amen. All right. Here's a question. There are no conservative Presbyterian churches anywhere close to our town. Closest is over an hour away. We have, so we have Presby's attend. So let's just go to the next part. What level of fellowship would you extend to, to these brothers and sisters? Would you allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper? I'm not the pastor here. You want me to answer first? <laughs> no, I know you're not. Let, let me answer graciously and explain my answer, and then these guys can tell me I'm wrong and uh, can say it the right way. I would instruct. I, I would encourage you to attend a Presbyterian church, and I, I would say there is a somewhat conservative Presbyterian church. It used to be a heritage. If you're in this area, uh, there was a somewhat conservative Presbyterian church in Fort Smith. I would encourage you to go there. The reason for saying you shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper with us, I believe that our understanding of these ordinances are different. Uh, I, as a Baptist, I see them as an ordinance. As a Presbyterian, you have to see them as a sacrament. And I would disagree. I'm not sacramental in these. I don't believe that they convey grace to you. I believe our view of baptism is different. I believe our view of the Lord's Supper is different. I believe if you want to take the Lord's Supper with those views, you need to go to people that share those views. And so, also our church practices closed communion. So only the members of Lee Creek take the communion together. We don't make you sit on a separate side of the room, but we would meet in a separate meeting, conduct business, take the Lord's Supper, do different things. We would just do it more as a, a way of our church celebrating that. Um, with Presbyterians, they're more in line of taking it on a more regular basis because they're receiving something from it. We're picturing something with it. So I would just say it's, it's a fundamental doctrinal difference I would encourage you you can come and hear preaching here but maybe you need to plan a conservative Presbyterian church here because I'm sure you're not the only conservative Presbyterian and if you are you may need to consider why you're Presbyterian and why there's so many conservative Baptists here and uh, I'm not being mean I'm just saying there's something fundamentally wrong here if you're the only two and Presbyterianism is an old denomination it's been around so if, you, if you're that in that big of a disagreement over infant baptism, the Lord's Supper, other things, you're not going to fit in in a Baptist church anyway. So you really ought to try to start one here. 
that's my take. You guys can take off and say disagree, agree, disagree. I'm the spokesman for the group. How is union with Christ vital to the Christian life? How is union with Christ vital to the Christian life? All the blessings of salvation flow from union with Christ. Um, so that would be one. Some people want to talk about there is an idea of being elect. There is an idea of union with Christ from eternity past in the sense of being placed in Christ. But most of the time when we talk about uni union with Christ or what, I, what I'm talking about is when we're born again and united to Christ. And uh, we don't like this word, but I think it's theologically precise in a mystical way. We're united to Christ. And then everything flows out of that. Our justification, sanctification. You know, how is it? It's kind of like, like, well, explain. I'm not making fun of the question. I'm using this as an illustration because it's a very good question. Right. What I'm saying is it's kind of like someone asking, in what way is the heart uh, important to your everyday life? Oh, yeah, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, I can't live right. without it. And I can't live without Christ. I'm united to Christ. Like everything I'm doing is flowing out of the life. I mean, he's sustaining me. He's uh, empowering me. He's keeping me. None of you guys would be Christians today if you weren't in union with Christ. That, yeah. Good answer. What is theonomy and why is it wrong? I can't answer them all, guys. Come on now. Well, let me just say real quick. I don't really think, and I know we've got some good brothers, brothers I love who are Baptists and theonomists, but I just don't think that you actually can be Baptist and, theon and a theonomist. Um, theonomy, in a nutshell, okay, in one sense, we, yes, we are all theonomists. We all love God's law, okay? Because that's one kind of the gateway, you know, like, well, you don't love God's law. Yeah, of course we do. Um, the, the, uh, theonomist wants to take the, the laws of the Old Testament specifically and apply those. I know I'm being a little bit... Uh, right, go ahead. You know, we, we understand. You take the Old Testament laws and apply those to society. And so, for example, if you don't execute an adulterer, you know, your law really isn't just, you know, because that was God. So you're kind of, and it's, it's uh, in, in my opinion, it's a misunderstanding of the church. I understand how Presbyterians, I actually think a Presbyterian who's a theonomist is a logical conclusion. To for be what in, they start for, with, yeah. That's right, for being Agreed. a Presbyterian. I don't think that you can be that Baptist, and what you're really going to, what you're really going to find one day as a Baptist, if if theonomy took over America, it won't. But if it is, and you're a Baptist and you're a theonomist, one day you're going to get an officer at the door, and he's going to knock on the door, and he's going to say, hey, have you baptized your children? You're like, well, no, they're not converted. Like, okay, we're taking them. You know, because, uh, yeah. you know, if you're going to apply this consistently, um, then you have to do, you have to take uh, this to its fullest extent. So I don't think that a Baptist can consistently be a theonomist, but I know some good brothers that are. I think right. that it's a problem 
I think it's a problem because it can be a confusion at its base of law and gospel. Right. And I, I think we're back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, Baptists are preachers, not writers, and they read a lot of Presbyterians because Presbyterians have a good gospel. But what you run into here with theonomy is Baptists have a doctrine that most other denominations don't. We believe in the liberty of conscience or what we call individual soul liberty. We don't believe that we can coerce someone to do something contrary to their conscience. Okay? This is what the, the country you live in is founded upon, is liberty of conscience. That's a Baptist doctrine. We get that from Romans 13 where one guy can drink a certain drink and another guy can't. We don't force one to be the other. One guy can celebrate holidays, one guy can't. We don't mandate that everybody celebrate Christmas, and we don't mandate that nobody celebrate Christmas. That liberty of conscience, each man doing that, is the reason why we don't mandate these things uh, that are biblical, because carnal man is enmity toward God. And so theonomy will not fix society any more than it fixed Old Testament Israel. If you look at Israel, they had the law of God, they were under the kings that were picked by God, and they were awful. <laughs> I mean, they were just in constant turmoil. Law doesn't fix our problem. The Spirit of God bringing us into harmony with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, quickening us, taking dead people and giving them life, saving them, that's what makes us a holy nation. We're not going to be a holy nation until the gospel saves everyone in the nation. Laws won't fix it. I'm going to say this. Uh, it, this isn't going to really answer the question of why, as you put it, theonomy is wrong. But what it, I am going to say is this. These debates were were and are still pretty hot. And, and there at one time I saw guys, on, friends of mine on Facebook, you know, just, you know, theonomy, theonomy. And, and I would ask them in person on Facebook, well, explain to me what you mean. Because in the basic sense, it's just simply God's law. Well, nobody's opposed to that. No Christian is opposed to that. True. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, I agree. Okay, so no Christian, you know, opposed to that. But here's the problem. When I would ask them to explain this theonomy, all I would ever get was, well, you need to read Greg Bonson's book. Because here's one problem. If you don't know your material, stop putting it out there. Okay? If you can't teach the subject, just shut up. Okay? Um, secondly, the problem with it is this. It has caused division in the church. Yeah. It's, causing, it's causing problems in the local church. Because we have such a Facebook mentality that we just want to look on somebody's podcast or watch their YouTube channel and get all of our understanding, and then you're in your local church, and you're not submitted to the leadership there, but you're submitted to some guy in Phoenix, Arizona, or some guy in Moscow, Idaho, I suggest you do like a lot of them and pack your bags and move because you're not helping your pastor. You're not being submitted there. I get a little fired up about this. I've seen it. I we do not tell. like it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to try to shut her down now. But, it, but as far as the problems I'm seeing, it's causing a division in the body of Christ. And, and when you start telling me it's a gospel issue, we're, we're, we're going to have problems. Okay. Yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. I'm not the smartest guy here. So. Just a quick resource, um, and I'm sorry I don't know the podcast episode, but if you Google this, I'm sure it'll come up. But Google Tom Hicks, Theonomy, 
Tom Hicks Theonomy, and Tom Hicks has been on a couple of different programs, I believe. He's a Baptist, and he's given some pushback and some well, gracious, thought-out reasons why we're not theonomist. And so Tom Hicks the, uh, Theonomy, if you Google that, I'm sure a podcast episode would be edifying for you to, to listen to and, and more in-depth than what we're going into here. If you're not a theonomist, then what are you? Uh, a Baptist. <laughs> yeah. uh, Form of government. Yeah, well, I was I was gonna. Whose law would you apply to government? Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Uh, yeah, I do think that's a great question. But here's here's the foundational issues. The foundational issues are that we believe in two kingdoms. We believe in the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. And so, as Baptists, what well, how we understand is that the kingdom of Christ uh, there is certainly overlap. But we understand that the kingdom of Christ is you know, like that mustard seed, and it's, it's, it's exploding, as it were, over the world through the preaching of the gospel. And so it's not, our, it's not our job to work to mandate covenant-specific laws to Old Testament Israel onto our nation. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get involved in politics. We do get involved in like. We ought to be involved in politics, and I'm all for people being involved in politics as long as they are, as long as they're the priority is the local church. But we want liberty of conscience is uh, is something. By the way, and Harold doesn't mean this, but it doesn't. When we say liberty of conscience, we don't mean that a person has a right to commit adultery. That's not what we're saying. Oh, you qualify that liberty of conscience because then you're allowing a lost person to dictate then what their conscience is telling them to do. So the liberty of conscience really is focusing on the believer who has a God-given, renewed conscience and has the law as his, uh, you know, his within him. He has God's word is, uh, that a lost person does not. And so if you just live your, this world by everybody doing what they feel is right without having a standard, then there is no standard. Sure, and we preach that standard, I'm, and I would not disagree with that at all. I mean, we preach that standard, we, we stand, we preach the book, but I'm saying that the church is, a, is an institution of the kingdom of Christ. Right. And that it's not the kingdom of Christ, it's not the church's responsibility to, to uh, wield the sword of the state. We wield the sword of the spirit. Right. We don't wield the sword of the state and dictate uh, to everyone you know, you can't legislate morality. Well, you can. You, you, you can't come up with laws that make people to do these things. You can punish them for immorality, but more laws are not going to make them moral. Israel yeah. proved that. And so what we're saying is, as Baptists, we believe the state has a right to govern based on Romans 13. We believe that whatever government you and I live in, we live in a country that has some Baptist values called liberty of conscience built into it inalienable rights given to us by our creator we believe that but if you and i were living in communist russia right now we would be bound under their laws to pay their taxes to abide by all of their statutes until it forced us to go against our god and at that point we would not comply with their law and so what what theonomists are saying is that every nation ought to have the law of god and the law of God has things that we can't expect lost people to be in keeping with. 
we can't expect lost people to celebrate the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, I would even say that one of the reasons for old Te- one of the reasons for the law in the Old Testament, it's ju- there's nothing unjust about it. One of the reasons, though, is it shows the futility of a nation. Uh, a nation is not going to be uh, converted. Yeah. By enacting these laws, so we we preach the gospel. I mean, that's I, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's not going to make a better society having the law of God there. I know we're oversimplifying some of this, and I and I'm again. I I think we ought to be able to find agreement as brothers in Christ and in with the gospel. And there's so much that we do agree on. Uh, Brandon, you want to say something? Well, just you know, again, you have to cl- classify some of this. And what's the two greatest laws? They're both in the Old Testament and the New. So how do we how do we apply that if we are going to say that we're theonomous? Uh, I mean, how do we make people love the Lord our God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor like themselves? You know, which hang on all, all, all the law and the prophets hang on these two great commandments. Right. And and so I think again that's where you're saying the two kingdoms. It comes back to that spiritual that the law and, and even getting what Paul said in Romans chapter seven, verse twenty through the end of that chapter, he gives three different distinct reasons why the law was given, and one was it's schoolmaster right show us our need of christ and if you're killing people because they're breaking the law then they don't ever have an opportunity to call upon the name of christ yeah but i'll say this and somewhat facetiously uh just stay tuned till the thousand year reign and you'll see a perfect theonomy yeah, <laughs> the law also preserved the seed for christ you know the law in the old testament is given to israel as a fence if you will to keep, if, if you don't have that, if you don't have that, then uh, I know God's sovereign, but that's the means that he uses. If you right. don't have that, you have, you know, you, you had that and you still lost 10 tribes, right? Yeah. But if you don't have that, you lose everybody. So that preserves that little fence around uh, the yeah. seed until we get to Christ. Well, and to, to clarify soul liberty, we're not saying people have liberty, like you said, to go out and murder, but... We're also not forcing people to worship God against their conscience. We don't believe in an Islamic religion where we hold a sword to someone's throat and make them say a, a certain you know, phrase in order to live. Christianity relies, biblical Christianity is Baptist practice. We're relying upon the Holy Spirit to work in a life, to make it a new creature. We can't legislate that action or put a certain set of laws in to increase that. Laws just simply show man's need for a Savior. Well, I think the, the opposite side, you know, the ditch, you, you can't be such a Baptist that, or such a, a crazy Baptist, I should say, that you just say, you know, I'm going to withdraw from everything. I don't care about our nation's laws or anything like that. No, we're involved, and we, we ought to hold our, we got this book. It's a standard. We ought to hold our leaders accountable by that. But it's different, in my opinion, there's a difference between that and saying, okay, I'm saying that we need to enact in the United States of America, Old Testament Israel laws uh i ju- i think it's not biblical and i also think it's impractical you know i'm gonna show up at harold's house because he took 45 steps on the lord's day yeah and i'm gonna put him in jail so we're out of time i was gonna try to explain a little more of my message i hurried through but someone had asked me what do you mean by gospel um explain your criteria of the gospel and kind of at what point do we separate from churches? And when I say gospel is the standard of fellowship, I don't, I don't mean there's like five points and you check all the boxes and, oh, it's a legitimate church. I mean, examine 
what's being preached and examine the church and see if it is a gospel preaching church. Listen to what Brandon White preached. Listen to what Alan Nelson preached. Look at their congregations. Are they living what their pastors are preaching? Those are the kind of churches you want to work with. It doesn't matter if they're TR only. It doesn't matter if they're SBC. It doesn't matter if they're 1689. It doesn't matter if they're post-mill, all-mill, pre-mill. If the gospel's being preached and the Holy Spirit dwells in those congregations, God's working there and we can work with them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the thrust of my message. So I said we would release at 2 o'clock. It's 2.10. Alan preached 10 minutes too long, so we're right on time. Look at him reaching for the hey, mic. <laughs> can we just say thank you real quick to Harold, to Joseph, nah, to nah. <laughs> I, I love this. Uh, let me close this in prayer and we'll dismiss F- Father we're, we're grateful for the fun that we've had We're grateful for the fellowship we share Lord we're grateful for the differences that we had I'm glad we're not all identical I'm glad that we disagree It makes us defend our positions more It causes us to study It gives us appreciation for where we are Lord I'm thankful that we can have one fundamental uh, belief that unites us all together in harmony, and it's the gospel. And I'm thankful for the diversity that we have in our churches. And Lord, I'm thankful for friends that love me and I love them, and I pray that in some way I've demonstrated the way that you've loved me as I've tried to love them. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would continue this work. I pray you would continue this meeting. pray you would bless this church for their efforts. Pray you'd bless these men for having been here. I pray the effects of this conference would spill over into all the congregations that are represented so that tomorrow morning refreshed and encouraged pastors would stand before their congregations with a new zeal, a new fire, that you would be proclaimed in your fullness throughout your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.